So many years ago, the story is told of a uh, young man from a distant land who came to St. John's on a student exchange. And uh, being a regular church attender in his homeland, uh, he determined to find a church in St. John's that uh, he could be a part of. Uh, as it so happened, the very first church that he went to was one where he felt at home, he felt welcomed, and it wasn't long until he entered into a sense of awe and reverence that was a part of that church. He was very pleased to find out that many of the songs that they sung were songs that he was familiar with, and he was very happy to find out that that church was a, a strong declarer of scriptural truth as he had become used to. Uh, he was a little nervous when communion time came, not sure whether uh, as a non-member he would be welcome to uh, partake, but it was soon made clear that in that church everybody was welcome at the table of the Lord, and so he was de delighted about that also. But as the weeks went on, he found that there was one aspect of their worship that uh, was completely foreign to him, and yet he was sure that this aspect of worship must be super important. And so after the student exchange was over and he went back to uh, his home, uh, uh, of course his church family gathered around and wanted to know all about his worship experience uh, in St. John's, Newfoundland, and he was very quick to point out to them this one aspect that he was sure was an important part of worship. He told them that in every service at that church, they made announcements. And so the next uh, Sunday morning, the pastor of that church dutifully stood up and just before the offering asked if there were any announcements. And the people look at him dumbfounded. Never heard that word before in a worship context and so were unsure what to expect. But again, the pastor asked, are there any announcements? And again, people looked at him until finally there was a shuffling of feet near the back and a clearing of the throat and one man stood up and said, I would like to announce that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I'm here this morning to declare and to announce that Jesus Christ is Lord. I would love to spend my time telling uh, stories about Dr. Starks, things that you could hold over her head at uh, just an opportune time. And uh, I couldn't think of too many, but maybe just one. One of our end-of-summer rituals in our home, uh, in addition to the two delightful children you saw, there are two others who maybe aren't quite so delightful, but there were four of us all together. And uh, at the end of each summer, our mother pulled us all together and took us to buy new shoes or sandals for school. Now, I know that you will find this very difficult to believe, but Janet was uh, obstinate, intractable, and obstreperous. As college students, I'm sure you understand those words. In case you don't roughly translate it, she was a pain in the butt. <laughs> and my mother had just about had enough. It was the only time in 52 years that I ever heard my mother say a bad word. I would also like to spend my time this morning uh, talking to you about the great ministry opportunities that exist in St. John's, Newfoundland, and, and tell you uh, about the, the plan and the purpose and the vision that we have to plant those three new churches in five years, and I'll probably make mention of those uh, at some point as we go along. But as I said, primarily, um, I'm here this morning to announce and to, to declare 
that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I'd like to uh, draw your attention to James chapter 4, where we can find at least three avenues through which the Spirit of God might examine the extent of His Lordship in our lives this morning. Uh, So James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, and reading from the New Living Translation. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Isn't it the whole army of evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous for what others have, and you can't possess it, so you fight and quarrel to take it away from them. And yet the reason you don't have what you want is that you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask, you don't get it because your whole motive is wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with this world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, that if your aim is to enjoy this world, you can't be a friend of God. What do you think the scriptures mean when they say that the Holy Spirit, whom God has placed within us, jealously longs for us to be faithful? He gives us more and more strength to stand against such evil desires. As the scripture says, God sets himself against the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw close to God, and God will draw close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you hypocrites. Let there be tears for the wrong things you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. When you bow down before the Lord and admit your dependence on him, he will lift you up and give you honor. So three things very quickly that are areas where the Holy Spirit might cause us to pause a few moments and examine the extent of the Lordship of Jesus Christ uh, in our lives. First of all, is he Lord even of your desires? I was pleased this morning that we shared together in the Lord's Prayer, and one of the phrases from the Lord's Prayer that, that constantly comes back to me is where Jesus teaches us to pray, thy will be done. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done in my heart and in my life. And yet I wonder if we really understand the full extent of that prayer or whether secretly in our hearts our prayer really is, Lord, may my desires be satisfied. Not may your will be done, but may my desires be satisfied. Uh, Those of you who have been taking Greek, and I took Greek way back when in, uh, uh, in the days of Bethany Bible College, there was 24 of us started out in the first semester. By the second semester, they had it whittled down to eight And somehow I got a B, and I have no idea how that happened, but it's still on my transcript, and I'm pleased for it. Uh, The the word that uh, appears as desires uh, here or in the New International Version in other translations of the Bible may be the word passions. Of course, it's the word from which we uh, get uh, our word hedonism, which, of course, is the, the doctrine or the belief that my pleasure or my happiness is the chief good in life. And sometimes I think that we misread the Scriptures or or, or misinterpret the Scriptures. Sometimes I think when we read from Romans chapter 8, we might read something like this, or think we read something like this, and we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be happy. But that's not what it says, is it? 
It doesn't say that God planned or purposed that we should be happy. It says that God planned or purposed that we should be conformed to the likeness of his son. And I'm sure that you understand that being conformed to the likeness of his son is sometimes a bit more painful and a bit more straining than just being happy. Maybe sometimes we read from Ephesians chapter 5 and we think that it says something like this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her happy. Sometimes we think that God's purpose is for us, his highest purpose for us, his greatest purpose for us is to be happy. But even that passage doesn't talk about happiness. It says that Christ gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water through the word. The belief that happiness is our highest good is an insidious lie that I believe has been creeping into the church. Right inside the church from Christian people, I've heard advice that sounds something like this. Oh, you're having marriage problems? Why don't you just leave him and move on and start again? After all, God wants you to be happy. Or or I've heard this advice given inside the church. Oh, you're having financial problems? Oh, don't get all stressed out about trying to get hold of your debts. Don't get all stressed out about sticking to a budget. Go ahead and buy that new car. Go ahead and take that expensive vacation. I mean, after all, God wants you to be happy. Or, Or I've heard this advice given right inside the church. Oh, the pastor's not meeting your expectations. Oh, you you don't like the music? Huh, it's okay, go find a new church. I mean, after all, God wants you to be happy. But I don't find that in the scripture. I don't find anywhere in the scripture that says that God's highest good for us is our pleasure, our happiness, the fulfillment of our desires. Now, I'm not saying that God wants you to be unhappy. Nor am I saying that we should go back to those old-fashioned days where everybody dressed in black and had a face as long as next week. But I am affirming, I am affirming that James, with James, that your pleasure is not the highest good. And that in order for Jesus to be Lord, he must be Lord even of your dreams and your desires. Second, it seems to me that Another avenue where the Spirit of God might challenge our hearts this morning is in the area of him being Lord even of our direction. Instead of praying, thy will be done, sometimes, at least under our breath, we say, Lord, give, us, give me an easy path. May my path be easy. And yet James talks to us in this passage about our aim, our direction, our, our purpose. If your aim is to enjoy this world, You can't be a friend of God. Recently in our church, I've been spending a fair bit of time in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You'll know that as the passage where Paul says that we are new creatures in Christ. Old is gone, new has come. It's also the passage in which Paul tells us that because he's a new creation, because he's constrained by God's love, he has stopped evaluating others by the way in which the world thinks of them. But it's also in that that passage that he speaks to us about being ambassadors of Christ. And as as I understand it, an ambassador is one who has been appointed 
and accredited as a resident representative of one authority in the domain of another. Accredited and appointed as a representative of one authority in the domain of another. And it seems to me a classic example from the scripture of one who uh, had not submitted his direction to, to the lordship of God was, was Jonah. Uh, of course, Jonah took off in the opposite direction. He went the other way. He wanted no part of bearing the ministry of reconciliation, and he wanted no part of preaching the message of reconciliation. And even when God got his attention by causing him to be swallowed by a big fish and vomited out on the beach, and he did go and preach, he didn't even want to see the results. Somebody asked me one time what I thought was one of the most unfair passages of Scripture. And I think the story of Jonah is one of the most unfair passages of Scripture. I have preached numerous sermons where I have begged and implored and encouraged people to repent and turn to God with very little response. And here's Jonah preaching, and he doesn't want them to respond. He doesn't want them to repent. He doesn't want them to turn back to God, and they do it anyway. I guess that's one of the things that keeps preachers humble. So Jonah didn't want any part of this message. He didn't want any part of being an ambassador. And as I understand it, once you join the ranks of ambassadors, it's no longer about you. Once you become an ambassador, it's no longer about you. And I believe that one of the most difficult issues in sanctification is the issue of surrendering control to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We know that the world doesn't revolve around us. And we know that it's not about us. And we even know that when we become ambassadors, we give up the right to make it about us. But still we struggle. So if God called you to Newfoundland, would you come? Or would you run in the opposite direction? There's all kinds of misconceptions about Newfoundland, some positive, some negative. When we were preparing to leave Brockville uh, four years ago, Brockville, Ontario, all of our friends said to us, oh, isn't it wonderful that you'll be closer to Heidi and Ian at Kingswood? And I said, well, actually, I'll be twice as far away. No. Yes. It takes me 11 or 12 hours to drive from Brockville here. It takes me 24 hours to drive from St. John's, Newfoundland. And then there were some people who said, well, what about the weather? And it's true. You can live in a fog for several days at a time. I mean, literal fog, not just proverbial fog. And it's true that you can get some big snowfalls, but people have a hard time believing that every Sunday, year-round, I stand outside and greet people on their way into church. They say, how can that be possible? Well, the average temperature in St. John's all winter is minus one. So there may be some downsides to the uh, weather, but there's some pretty good upsides as well. And then there are people who say to me, well, well, this has never been said to me, but I heard that it was actually said to one of the pastors who did come to Newfoundland for a period of time, where are you ever going to get your groceries? <laughs> I mean, how do you get milk and bread? Where do you get your meat from? Well, we have Superstore and Sobeys and Walmart, the same as everybody else. No. <laughs> yes. 
Uh, and so there are all of these misconceptions about Newfoundland, how far it is, what the weather's like, how uh, rural or how backward it is. But I want to tell you just briefly that there are some marvelous ministry opportunities there. If ever there was a field that is white unto harvest, it is Newfoundland and Labrador in general, the Avalon Peninsula in particular, and uh, this, the greater city of, uh, or the great metropolitan area uh, of, of St. John's. As uh, my sister mentioned, it is our vision, our purpose to plant three new churches in that area over the next five years. It is our vision to see 500 people converted, baptized, and discipled through those churches. It is our purpose, as uh, was on the screen at the beginning of the service today, that those churches be deliberately uh, evangelistic, deliberately incarnational, incarnational, deliberately relational. Those are among our core values. The town of Paradise, which is just outside of uh, the city of St. John's, is a town of 14,000 people. It is the fastest growing municipality in all of Atlantic Canada. And for those 14,000 people, there are presently six places of worship, one of which is a kingdom hall. So there is a field which is white unto harvest. There's a new subdivision. Uh, of, of St. John's, with just adjacent to Mount Pearl, where we live, where there are 1,100 homes that have all been built in the last five years, and in that whole subdivision, there are zero churches. And those are not just two extreme examples of the opportunity in our area of Canada. Those are just common representations of the kind of city in which we live. Statistics show that St. John's, the uh, metropolitan area of St. John's, is the most under-church city in all of Canada outside of Quebec. And so this vision, this purpose, this dream, this goal that we have is not pie in the sky. It's not outlandish. It's not unreasonable. It is an incredible opportunity that lies before us and that lies before the Wesleyan church. And so I ask you again, if God called you to Newfoundland, would you come or would you run in the opposite direction? I'm not saying that you should all uproot and move to Newfoundland, nor am I suggesting that you're somewhat less spiritual than others if you don't travel great distances as an ambassador of Christ. But I am affirming with James that we must humble ourselves and draw near to God because we are no longer our own. We are ambassadors appointed to represent the kingdom of God in the domain of darkness, and as such, in order for Jesus Christ to be Lord, he must be Lord even of your decisions and your direction. And so he must be Lord of your direction, and he must be Lord of your desires. One final thing this morning, on a slightly different note, it seems to me that he must also be Lord of your deficiencies. We have our problems. I guess if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't have any problems, it'd be all right to leave just now. But we all have our problems. As pastors, we have our problems. Some of the statistics that I read from time to time scare me half to death. Apparently, of all of those of you who are pursuing pastoral ministry, only 50% of you will make it past your fifth year. That's scary. Only 10% of you will actually retire as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
That's scary. Apparently, those of us presently in pastoral ministry, 94% of us feel pressured to have a perfect family. I guess I'm in the 6%, Heidi. And Ian. And apparently, 90% of us testify that ministry is not what we expected it to be. And 80% of pastor's spouses feel completely left out and underappreciated. And 70% of us have no close friends. And 50% of us feel so discouraged that we lose our microphone. 50% of us feel so discouraged that we would quit if we had somewhere else we could go. And 40% of us have a serious conflict with one of our parishioners every month. It's not surprising that statistics show that between 1,500 and 2,000 pastors in North America quit every month. No doubt some of that has to do with moral failure. Even we're not exempt from falling prey to temptation and addiction. But the majority, I think, are the cause of some kind of burnout some kind of feeling oppressed by unreasonable expectations imposed upon us or imposed by us. Some kind falling prey to some kind of battle against legalism and tradition that beats us down or maybe even when we're young, falling prey to the temptations of pride and arrogance, walking in like we think we know it all picking arguments over non-issues, demanding respect rather than investing the time to earn it, wanting to be the expert rather than having a teachable spirit and being willing to learn. James says, bow down before the Lord and admit your dependence on him. I've been thinking about King David and King Solomon. And this is probably a gross exaggeration. But I'm wondering if one of the differences between King David and King Solomon, one of the things that makes King David a man after God's own heart, is that it seems to me that at the end of Solomon's reign, when he allowed all of that wicked and sinful worship of detestable gods and idols to resurface in the kingdom. That even though he knew it was wicked and even though he knew it was wrong, he failed to acknowledge it and do anything about it. And yet David, when he was caught in his sin and adultery, when he was exposed for his wickedness, rather than trying to rationalize it or explain it away, rather than trying to exert his kingship and say, that's none of your business, David responded in repentance. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Do not let the spirit depart from me. I wonder if one of the things that made King David a man after God's own heart was the way in which he was willing to humble himself take ownership or responsibility for his wickedness when confronted by it. Just the other day, I was reading a blog post uh, about what the writer called the false gospel of try harder. 
And this is what he said, when things are not going well, try harder. When your commitments are wavering, try harder. When your relationships are faltering, try harder. When you are battling secret sins, try harder. And then he went on and say, here is what Jesus said to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Instead of try harder, I was to go to Jesus. I found an inner transformation that God brought through my deep confession of powerlessness. Trying harder wouldn't work. God would have to come inside and rearrange my heart. Nothing else would do. Instead of positive thinking, building my self-esteem, or any other try-harder scheme, God was saying, give up. It was nerve-wracking, but I was desperate. I knew my try-harder strategy had failed me over and over. I had been walking in the insanity of doing the same things, but with more effort for decades. It didn't help my relationships, and it didn't provide the peace for which my heart was longing. So the gospel is not that Jesus came and asked us to be more moral by trying harder. He invites us to come follow him, even unto death, even death on a cross. Then he went on and somewhat tongue-in-cheek said maybe our motto, our slogan, instead of being try harder, should be die harder. I'm not saying that there is no place in our journey for deep commitment and hard work. But I am affirming with James that inner transformation is not the result of try harder. It is in repentance and surrender. It is in bowing before the Lord and admitting our dependence upon him. And if Jesus Christ is to be Lord, he must be Lord even of our deficiencies, even of our degeneracy. In the Gospel of Mark, there's an interesting little story in chapter 2 that tells about some Pharisees who accused Jesus' disciples of breaking the prohibition on harvesting on the Sabbath day by plucking some heads of wheat as they walked through the grain fields. Jesus, ever the master of the teachable moment, ever, ever the master teacher, took advantage of that opportunity to teach or to speak about the significance of Sabbath. And his little lesson on the Sabbath in Mark chapter 2 ends with this declaration that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I'm always interested when I read scripture by words that don't have to be there in order for it to make sense. I would still read that story if Jesus had concluded his lesson by saying the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. But I'm interested in that word even. That word deliberately inserted that the Son of Man is Lord even 
of the Sabbath. And I'd like to conclude this morning by making the same announcement as I made about 20 minutes ago. Jesus Christ is Lord. And in order for Jesus Christ to be Lord in your heart and in your life, I would submit that he must be Lord even of your desires. And he must be Lord even of your direction. And he must be Lord even of your deficiencies. Amen. Father, we come to you this morning and we pray as Jesus taught us, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done in my life and in our lives. We accept and we acknowledge and we embrace this morning the declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the closing moments of this service, may your spirit turn the spotlight of heaven on our hearts and on our souls. Would you reveal to us if we have not made you Lord of our desires, but rather have chosen to believe that my pleasure, my happiness is the highest good. May the Spirit of God examine whether the Lord is even Lord of our direction. Would we rather choose our own comfort than walking in obedience to the call that you place upon our lives? Would you help us to surrender even our deficiencies to you, our discouragements, our secret sins, our selfish desires, our human judgments of ourselves and others? We yield those deficiencies to you this morning that you truly may be Lord, Lord of all, Lord of all the kingdoms of our hearts. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your spirit this morning. Amen. I'm going to sit down over here and as the service ends and even after the service has ended, if there's those of you who want to talk about what we've heard or pray about what we've heard or hear more about what's going on in Newfoundland, I'd be glad to talk to you for as long as you want to talk to me. Thank you.